Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Excuse me, are you Kion Wolf? Hi, yes, I am. I am your biggest fan. I can't believe I'm standing here in the supermarket talking to you. <laughs> What's your name? Uh, my what? Your name. Oh my god, I'm so excited to meet you that I'm blanking on my name right now. It'll come back to you. Why did they cancel action? That was so great. Action? I, I don't think I know action. Yeah, you played an ex-child star turned prostitute turned studio executive. I did? Grace of My Heart is my favorite movie. That's wonderful, but I, you know, I've, I haven't actually ever seen... Let me show you something. This is an actual piece of popcorn from the medium-sized popcorn I got the first time I saw that movie in the theater. I always keep it with me. What's that stuff growing on it? That's measles. They say nothing can live on movie popcorn because of all the chemicals, but those are real living measles. It's like a miracle. Okay, well, you know, I gotta run. I've got a Chumba Wumba class in five minutes. So. Wait, Chumba Wumba class? It's sort of like Zumba, but they knock you down and you get back up again. I just realized something. This is the windbreaker I wore when I saw you in To Die For. My counselor always says, Greg, you've got to stop wearing that windbreaker. It smells like cat poo. Oh, well, there's your name. My name is Cat Poo? No, it's Greg. You said your name was Greg. Look, I'm pretty sure you got me mixed up with Ileana Douglas. <laughs> no, I don't follow figure skating. No, she's an actress. She's in all those things you're talking about. Oh, suddenly you're Miss IMDB, Miss Wikipedia, Miss Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Hey, what was that thing you did with Kevin Bacon? Stir of echoes. Except I'm not in that movie. She is. Don't you think it's a little odd that you're so obsessed with somebody you don't recognize? It's a condition. I, I'm a celebrity stalker who's bad with names and faces, so this happens to me a lot. Oh, I'm really sorry. Anyway, I guess I've never really loved any of your work. Well, it was nice meeting you. Good luck with your Chumba Wumba class. My what? Oh, I made that up. My real job here is to introduce a conversation with Ileana Douglas. I wonder if he'll ask her what it's like to be an announcer on the Colin McEnroe show. And now, Robert De Niro. No, I'm not Robert. See, everything's getting very mixed up here. Um, <laughs> but uh, in fact, uh, we stole uh, the, the premise of that intro. I stole from Ileana Douglas herself. Uh, and you can actually find it online under the heading Ileana Rama and, and other headings as well. Uh, it's one of many, very, many, very, very funny other things that she's done. And she's here kind of back home in oh. Hartford. Uh, the best. <laughs> the best. All right. So we should first of all say that Ileana yes. Douglas is coming to the Hartford State, uh, Hartford State, to the uh, Mark Twain House. Hartford State was way in the past. Yes. To the Mark Twain House, uh, something called Book Markets, free event. It's followed by a book sale and signing, a sale of her book, which I'm holding in my hand right now. I blame Dennis Hopper. Uh, and reservations are recommended just in general, but also especially for this, called 2470-998. Or just visit MarkTwainHouse.org. I think that will be easier. So welcome back to Connecticut. Thank you. See, when people say 
that you know they're like famous people say they mm. they grew up in Connecticut yeah. or particularly the granddaughter of Melvin Douglas says I grew up in Connecticut. I sort of think like Greenwich or something like that. But you're really from Connecticut. Yeah, I think everybody th- every, everybody sort of thinks of the when you say uh, outside Connecticut you're from Connecticut. Mm-hmm. They don't think of they the, as you said they think of Westport or Greenwich, but they don't think of. Uh, says the nutmeggers and the ice fishing. The Middletown driving. The Middletown picking apples at Lyman Orchard. <laughs> so all that's, the fun stuff. That was a great shock <laughs> to me. So we should first of all explain uh, the title yes. of this book. The title of the book is sort of about this, you know, relatively affluent and I hesitate to say idyllic life that you might have been having growing up in Connecticut. Absolutely. When suddenly <laughs> chaos was sown in your life by this man. God. And it was going across the sky, and it flashed three times at me and zigzagged and whizzed off, man. And I saw it. So this man uh, who's speaking there disrupted your life. Hence the title of your book. Explain what I'm talking about. Well, first of all, that was like a whole flashback of my entire childhood. <laughs> totally. That was, that was, that was it. Um, but no, we were a big movie-going family, and my parents loved movies they even their you know their dating when they met in New York they would date and go to movies movie houses but um in 1969 they saw the movie Easy Rider and just completely changed their lives especially my my father just you know was they were i think they were very much taken by the message of the film and in my opinion again like moving to Connecticut and sort of achieving the American dream of a nice house in the suburbs and good schools was suddenly thrown out the window and we became hippies and really they embraced the hippie lifestyle and uh, my father started a, a commune called the studio and filled it with uh, a bunch of hippies that looked just like Dennis Hopper. <laughs> Everybody looked and sounded like Dennis Hopper. It's hard to know what the message of the movie is. I mean, basically, if you set yourself free from society's constraints, you'll be killed by rednecks with shotguns. Well, see, I always... Uh, I take People a, forget that part. I know, and I take away that part, too, because to me, what it, when I saw the movie, they played the movie, I remember, when I was in high school. I saw mm. a very cut version. I was like, this is, this is the movie that changed our lives? <laughs> but when I saw it later on, and when you watch it now, to me, what it represents is freedom, which is interesting, like the people in this country, the people who've now embraced freedom are mm. the ones that are, want guns and they want to kill everybody, and we all need guns but to me then freedom represent represented freedom from capitalism freedom from being trapped mm-hmm. under a 9 to 5 job to you know the ability to find yourself to reconnect with nature and uh, communal living. That That's what I think that the movie really represented. Yeah, and Nicholson has that speech in the middle of it about freedom and uh, what, what real liberty is as they're all sitting around the campfire there. But And also, yes, as a, as a I get, you know, the Vietnam War is going on, so there's a lot of college students um, where we, you know, grow, that were there in the commune and, and again, it was, it had a little bit of that anti-war, anti-establishment is how I 
they mm. think of it, a rebellious nature. And Dennis Hopper, more than anyone in the film, to me, really represents that the most. We're talking to Ileana Douglas, I should say. She she is the girl from Cape Fear. That's how we, she was known for a long time, anyway. <laughs> and then To Die For and Grace of My Heart and a whole bunch of other things as well. She's gone on to make her own short films to write this uh, terrific book about her life in and out of movies. She's here in the studio right now. So... Uh, just to stay with that for a moment. So Easy Rider is 1969. Yeah. And in a way, it begins. It's really the beginning of a 10-year span of the greatest period in the history of American cinema. I mean, that year, you've got that film. You've got Midnight Cowboy. You've got Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And then it just goes. till uh, 10 years till 79, that ends with Apocalypse Now and Alien. In between are Taxi Driver, Annie Hall, both Godfather movies, The French Connection, Jaws, Star Wars, Chinatown, The Deer Hunter, Rocky, One Flew Over the Coop. Cuckoo's Nest, A Clockwork Orange, Close Encounters. There's never been anything like that 10-year period. I yeah. mean, every movie I just talked about is iconic, has dialogue people remember, has scenes people can't get out of their heads. Jaws. And Jaws, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, another game changer. Right. And you're marinating in that as a kid, basically. Oh, my God. I mean, do, do you think that's obviously you've become – um, a movie actress, but actor, but um, you also love movies. I mean, I've talked to mm-hmm. actors who don't love movies as much as you clearly do. Do you think part of it was just growing up in the greatest decade ever? Yes, I, absolutely. I was very, it, it, to me, it's two things. It was, um, a f- you know, finding, first of all, the culture that I grew up in, which was this hippie environment, my parents were that were very involved in that. To me, life seemed like a movie. They were characters in a movie. And so for me, looking for my own identity, I started watching, you know, movies on TV and go, going to movies. Um, and I was very blessed that, again, in those days, there was in Middletown, there was the Middletown, Connecticut. There was the Palace Theater and the Capitol Theater. There was the Middletown Drive-In. Um, and so there was the ability to watch. There was double, you know, there would only be about 99 cents. And then the drive-in, forget it. That was five movie, you know, sort of dusk till dawn. And then as soon as I discovered that my grandfather was Melvin Douglas and wanting to impress him, uh, and he was giving me movie books. So then I started to kind of understand, oh, this whole history of films. And that's when I started really then want making my lists of films. So I not only had the movies from the 70s to watch, but that's when I started to go back and watch the movies of, you know, Billy Wilder. If if it was anybody they had worked, that he had personally worked with, Ernest Lubitsch, people like that, then I wanted to know all about their body of work. We should say that although Dennis Hopper cinematically disrupted your life, sowed chaos, and uh, took a, a whole <laughs> an, an intact and stable family and scattered it to the winds, but he was kind to you later on. And one of the two occasions in this book in which you faint from hunger, uh, the other one being involving a big potato in the mountains, yes. um, he was kind to you, right? Uh, yes. As I was very excited to meet Dennis Hopper, and you know, I, I was I grew up and became an actress, and as I said, the the reason the book is called I Blame Dennis Hopper is because I believe that he specifically with that film changed the direction of my life and I don't think I would have become an actress had it not been for Dennis Hopper. So of course I had to grow up, become an actress, be cast in a movie with Dennis Hopper playing my father figure type lover so that everything could come full circle. But on the day I was going to meet him, the um, the guy that was driving me to to the work because it was a low budget movie fainted he fainted from hunger uh behind the the wheel of the car we were in a three car accident and so when i met dennis hopper it was 
he di- he was the one who diagnosed me as having a concussion by saying, you know, your brain your brain moved inside your head, man. <laughs> it's not <laughs> it's not supposed to do that. And so I started crying, and then he said, "You're going to be okay. Don't cry." And I said, "No, I'm crying because you changed my life." And so it was uh it was very significant. And we and he and I did become good friends and he's a mystic and I did blame him for everything and he said he shrugged and said I'm sorry he and Peter Fonda every time I see them and I recently saw Peter Fonda we have a we just have an ongoing uh, have a little joke. reunion basically. yeah, yeah. You, you were I said how many people's lives did you guys ruin with that and they always <laughs> laugh and they're sort of sheepish just yours <laughs> um, all right so uh, it's I think time to talk about your first ever screen appearance. Are you ready? Here it's we go. time for the Ranger Andy Show. My name is Ranger Andy, and I've traveled all around. And I am writing you a song about the things I've found. I'll sing about the mysteries of animals galore, and hope to tell you many things you never knew before. All right, I can actually already tell you had a relatively good Ranger Andy experience. I It's incredible. I mean, we're, the... Now, this was a show for, you know, maybe people outside Connecticut. Ranger Andy had this, you know, little cabin, I think, that you went to. Yeah, right, Ranger the, station. Right. But we didn't have any money. Like, we couldn't, uh, you know, and the, so the kids that would get to be on the show were rather privileged or you'd be in Boy Scouts or something. Well, yeah, like your Cub Scout Scouts. troop would go. My Cub Scout troop went. Yeah. I wasn't privileged. Yeah. So I wouldn't have, well, for me, any. <laughs> don't, don't lay that. Anyone, anyone who had anything. My, my commune <laughs> actually went. We, I was in a different commune. We all went. But I had a uh, I had a little pet hawk, which I'd found and nursed because I used to watch Ranger Andy. But I somehow, which I'm I don't recall because I was so little. But somehow I went on, so I, I wasn't like those schmucks sitting in the audience. I had an actual, I had a talent, I had a bird. So I went on with my hawk, Aquarius, and um, I had t- I had taught the the hawk to eat chicken off my brother's head. And uh, so we were like, we, that was like a real skill. So we, I was on Rager Andy um, actually performing. Mm. Of course, the first thing that you get when you get there is you realize that the, that the log cabin is made of uh, – the stones are not real. They're made of right. plastic. So that's already devastating. But um, Also devastating was that he didn't like children. But you might not have <laughs> – I mean he really didn't like children. I could open up the phones for a Ranger Andy PTSD and we'd do a whole hour on it. Uh, We're not going to. Okay. But people like he would like scowl and, and yell and he wasn't – he didn't like children. Now, I can't remember though if I had the original Ranger Andy or the – then there was a new Ranger. Well, maybe you get the new Ranger Andy. I yeah. may have gotten the new one. Yeah. I think I, I, I may have gotten the newer Ranger Andy. Yeah. Ranger no, Andy. he was pumped full of uh, Prozac. He was, that was much nicer. That was my – first taste of real celebrity boy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, being if anybody un- can come up with that kinescope, you know, I'm sure she'd <laughs> give you a hundred bucks for it. Oh my God. Absolutely. Me and Aquarius, yeah. my hawk. So let's do one other aspect uh, of your Connecticut show business life. We'll skip over the Camelot Dinner Theater. You have to read the book to read about the Camelot Dinner Theater. Um, but uh, at a certain point, you find out that there was a summer theater troupe in Hartford at the Hartford Stage Company. Yes. Uh, but you had to live in the uh, inner theater, uh, inner city. Yes. So un- like uh, in sports a lot, you know, somebody from the inner city will they'll get a fake address in a white suburb <laughs> so they can play football for the white suburb team. You sort of did the opposite, right? Yes. Well, I, you know, nobody would have believed like, well, the granddaughter of Melvin Douglas, like why, how would, why would she need to be in this group? But I, I had, was reading it in a paper 
that there was this, you know, youth theater group for, uh, and it was specifically said underprivileged youth living in the inner city. And I said, I got to get in this group somehow. And so I found a family that lived in the, what was then the north end of Hollywood, uh, north end, sorry, Hollywood, north end of Hartford. Very different. To use their address. And so that became my address. So I could at least audition to get to be qualified because you also had to live specifically in Hartford. And they only took 40 kids. Mm -hmm. So it was not easy to get into this group. We actually do have audio of your audition. Here we go. (laughs) Well, Okay, that actually isn't your audition. That's Liza Minnelli, but that's the song you sang. Pretty close. Well, it, it sad because again, when you're when you're young, you always sing songs that are completely inappropriate for you. So, but I <laughs> thought it was a it was a, a song. I I had that album, and then I had the soundtrack to um, to uh, New York, New York. Mm-hmm. I was obsessed with Liza Minnelli, but I decided on maybe this time because I really felt uh, singing it eight thousand times in my bedroom that it really it was going to express my real my my real desire my burning desire to be in show business this was my dream do or die and i so i i my my mom drives me up to the audition and i they said bring your sheet music but i never realized that the sheet music was in a different key than what i had learned it so i'm standing up there doing my you know doing my singing and the guys play i'm singing you know it you know doing like maybe this time doing my best Liza and he's playing da 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 so now we're going up and down the keys I can't find it and finally he stops and it was a whole I mean there was a whole row of all the people behind the table looking at, looking at me and he stop he bangs the piano and he says you're singing in the wrong key and I said because I was a real tough kid I said um. I'm singing in the right key, the key of Liza. <laughs> there is no other key. And luckily for me, everybody start, started laughing. And then there was this discussion, what are we going to do? And then that's where it was just a miracle. The musical director got up and he said, you know what? Why don't you sing and I will play? And I think this is where I learned my first great acting lesson was that the total fear and terror I had of like, I cannot leave this room. Like, I have to get into the show actually weirdly became the drive through the song. So I'm like crying and singing. And by the, I mean, I left it all on the stage as they say. And uh, at the end of it, boy, they were applauding and weirdly it was just the way I had imagined it originally in my bedroom. I was, you know, I said, they will be reduced to tears and tell me they're, they're building a new theater in my honor. But like, luck, so luckily for me, I, I got into the Hartford Stage Company Youth Theater, and it changed my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for three summers too, right? Three summers. Yeah. It was inc- it was just an incredible, integrated experience um, under the direction of a, of a director who's no longer with us named Clay Stevenson. Oh, I knew Clay. Uh, oh, I he, did, yeah. he was in and just changed our lives in terms of discipline. And they also moved us. First of all, we got paid, which was incredible. But the other funny part of the story was that once I got in the company. 
I was only 16. I didn't live here. Mm. And so I had to, again, look in the paper, and I found a, a room for rent mm. in, in, in someone else's apartment on, uh, in, on Whitney Street. So I had a back room. And so when I was at the stage company, everybody else lived at home, but I was living large. I had my own place. <laughs> so all the kids from the company would come over, and uh, we, had a nice, we had a nice hang. All right, so we're talking to Ileana Douglas. She is going to be at the Mark Twain House tomorrow night to speak. We're going to skip over some things. You have to go to the thing tomorrow night uh, yes. for the reading. Only 30 tickets left. Only 30 tickets left. So yep. um, call the Mark Twain House right now, uh, and um, you'll have to go. To, you'll miss certain things because I'm, just, I'm not, I'm not going to ask her about everything. What we're <laughs> going to do is we're going to take a break right now. We'll come back, and we'll have more Ileana Douglas. And by the way, people are uh, tweeting at us. Uh, I'm here with Ileana Douglas, and it turns out I am the envy of many. Uh, Jim Chapelain is tweeting, mad crush on her. And somebody calling himself, him or herself, Red Menace tweets, I love her in everything I've seen her in. She has that oddball beauty that adds something a little freaky, a little (laughs) different. You'll take that, right? Yeah, that's like when that's like James Woods calling me the thinking man sex symbol. It means you have to think really hard about whether or not you want to be with me. A lovely thing for someone to say after you've wrecked his shoes with goat cheese. (laughs) Um, You have to read the book to understand. That's a joke you won't get. It's an inside, very inside. Gotta read the book. Gotta read the book. (laughs) All right. So, by the way, you may tweet us at WNPR Colin. You can uh, confess your particular strange uh, desires and attitudes regarding Ileana Douglas, and then I will read them on the air. Um, <laughs> so, but, I mean, not too graphic, please. So, um, we got to sort of, we have to just leapfrog forward just yes. to cover any of this stuff in time. So, you know, we, we covered a couple of your big show business breakthroughs, Ranger Andy with the Hawk. <laughs> um, so, let's um, let's hear your voice in cinema one of the first times it was really heard. Here we go. Okay. Now, can you recognize that that's me? Oh, totally. I would. Yeah. You, so, if so, nobody told me, I would, that would have been my first guess. <laughs> but I can. Of course, cl- it's you. I can clearly. I'm like, oh, that's my scream. It's so <laughs> that it sounds just like me. Yeah. So you should explain this. You. This was sort of at a time when you were actually working for a publicist. Yes, named Peggy Siegel. Again, my complete uh, sideways get way of getting into show mm-hmm. business. Because I was such a movie fanatic and knew movie trivia, I was in a theater group, and somebody worked with a director named Frank Perry, Diary of a Mad Housewife, Mommy Dearest, um, great director, The Swimmer. And he uh, knew that Peggy Siegel needed an assistant. She was uh, she had the office next door. He recommended me because of my encyclopedic knowledge, and I was working for Peggy Siegel. Now, my first little very quick job was that while working for Peggy Siegel, Frank Perry did, was doing a movie called Hello Again. They'd forgotten to cast a small part. He came running in. He said, you're an actress, right? And I said, yeah, I'm an actress who answers the phone. I get it. And he said, no, we may have this part for you. So 
cut to me literally being driven to the set. I have like five lines in the movie. I yell at Shelley Long. I come back to work and my boss, who I've been working for for a year, says, you're an actress? <laughs> so that was that was the first time they ever... So the word went around that I was an actress and my resume went uh, to uh, Martin Scorsese's assistant. She said, you never know. We may find something for you. And on my resume, again, literally as a joke, because I had played this part in acting school where I was murdered, uh, the director told me I had a great scream. So I put special skills, great legs, blood-curdling screams. And I figured, you know, one of them will get me somewhere. Sure enough, she says, we need someone to dub screams for Barbara Hershey in The Last Temptation of Christ. Go down this afternoon, scream for Martin Scorsese, and the rest is history. Um, so yeah, you did get to, you get, did get that screaming role, and yes. and this touched off a partnership <laughs> of two different kinds with Martin Scorsese. You eventually became his significant other. You were also in a bunch of movies in uh, of his, uh, and which you always had to audition for. And yes, and in fact, this is really I found this really fascinating. In order to have your face bitten off by – by the way, I got in trouble with Sam for uh, – who's tweeting. He's mad because I ruined uh, the ending of Easy Rider. You should still see the movie. It's a really good movie, and there's like a lot more to it, and how it ends is not that important. Yeah, also, it, Bruce Willis is dead. He doesn't know it. The guy <laughs> in the crying game, it's the girlfriend has a – never mind. Uh, <laughs> I just ruin all the movies for you all at once. So, um, so we'll ruin a tiny little thing about Cape Fear. In order yeah. to have uh, – uh, to get a role – Yes. In which your face is, part of your face is bitten off by Robert De Niro. Yeah. You had to audition not for Martin Scorsese, but for Robert De Niro. Yes. It, yeah. For, well, first for, I had to audition for Ellen Lewis, uh, partly because the role wasn't even really written. Hmm. Um, and uh, I, so it, I, they had to make sure, as uh, uh, Marty had said, it's not really up to me. It's up to kind of a chemistry read with Bob, hmm. Mr. De Niro, Robert De Niro. And um, and so I had to do this lengthy improvisation, the bar, you know, which later became the, the bar scene with Robert De Niro. And so once he approved me, then I got in the movie. But then the part still, in a sense, wasn't really written. And this became the first, again, I didn't even know it at the time, beginning of my collaborating with a director to basically create a part that had not really been written. And, and so – I mean, there's so many things to ask about this, and, and really the description in the book about how that's not so much the face biting scene, but the yes. bar, the seduction barroom scene. The way that you describe it in the book, I'm not even going to have you do it here. It's just so such a great read in the book of just how you began creating an atmosphere in the bar with De Niro to have this sort of flirtation and seduction um, happen. But so when you were auditioning yes. like, and, and working on the chemistry read with De Niro, it was not necessarily known that he'd be biting off your face. Or, or oh no, that that. No, well, actually, no. That's a very good point. No, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. We we knew that there was going to be a rape scene, but uh, Bob does extensive research, and that particular case was based on a real case. Yeah, yeah. Even though people thought it was gratuitously violent, um, that was that was what they ultimately decided. So, good point. It was not decided actually until we were until we were probably well along into the script. And it is it is. Um, uh, an unusually intimately horrifying scene. I mean, we see people get killed in movies. We get see people get raped in movies and stabbed, and all kinds of horrible things happen. There's something about the intimacy of this um, that's horrible, and and it's really it's an interesting scene because it tips the movie right. I yeah. mean, it's one thing to say this guy is a psychotic 
murderous madman. It's another thing to show us this, that that he really has – He's trying to hurt Nick Nolte at this time by hurting you, mm-hmm. and he'll do anything. Yeah, well, I think the two qualities that I wanted to bring to it was that um, when I was in acting school, I had, living in New York, I had experienced a, a couple things. A girl in our class was was murdered. And so to me, what I thought was very important, which, which is what I wanted to stress to Marty, was that you know, some, sometimes that, uh, you know, horrible things happen to nice people. And we don't know we're in danger. In my personal life, like, you don't know you're in danger until about literally 10 seconds mm. before. And so uh, what my what I thought my job was as an actress was to have absolutely no, them to be so focused on my goal, which is like, oh, Nick Nolte stood me up and I'm going to go home with the first guy that, you know, that shows some interest in me. And the less that I knew that I recognized, I didn't see the danger signals, the more terrifying that would be for the uh, audience. And that's how I kind of came up with this thing with the laughing, this sort of nervous Mm. uh, laughter. And, I mean, this – um, one of the things you say in the book uh, is that when De Niro's on the set, mm-hmm. things change. You can have kind of a rollicking, fun, relaxed set when during the downtime people are laughing, joking around, doing crazy stuff. De Niro comes on the set and a whole bunch of other things happen. Of course, because he carries with him this, you know, this gravitas, which is such a challenge when you're a newcomer. You know, you're just you just don't see anything except Robert De Niro and his body of work. And it's the kind of thing, it's like you finding yourself on a tightrope suddenly where you're like, I don't know how I got here. I don't I don't know how to act. <laughs> and I found myself, you know, I said, oh, my God, the scene's going to be slipping away because <laughs> Bob comes on with his entourage and, and they're taking care of him. And he didn't even want to rehearse the scene. It was and I and we, it was going to be this improvisational scene. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm, what am I going to do? So I went back to my trailer and just really, really prepared and again, acting lesson number two, I, what I learned is take him out of the qu- equation completely. He's not Robert De Niro, movie star. This is about you. You're what what's going to happen to you in this bar, you know, in this bar. And over, the, I mean, we shot the scene for 14 hours, and over the course of the day, um, by you know the the end of the day, it was it was literally a way, a, an awakening for me of people kind of recognizing, you know, that I had done a good job. And the next day when I came to the set, every it was my first time, like, people knew my name. They had a chair with my name on it. And the, the only time I had ever seen that was, you know, on the Being There set. My grandfather said, oh, my God, I'm, I've arrived. My <laughs> name is on a chair. See, we, we, we should say a quick thing, okay? This is a jump back in time. But uh, your grandfather, Melvin Douglas, took you to the set of Being There. You had – you were – the kind of girl who goes to the drive-in movies expecting to watch the movie, but, <laughs> and no matter what the movie is, it's going to be more interesting than the guy who wants to make out with you. So uh, you're that kind of movie fan. So you're, you're on the set, and you you have something of a uh, – obsession might be too strong a word, but you're really, really excited about Peter Sellers. Yeah. It's almost impossible for you to believe uh, that you're going to meet him. And then you meet him. And what does he tell you to learn how to do? He tells me, you know, he, well, I was being very respectful, of course. And then um, I wanted to, you know, meet Inspector Cluzo. (laughs) (laughs) So at the the end of the day, um, uh, my grandfather, you know, called him over and he went into this, you know, really kind of funny routine about, uh, you know, being a part of a ring of uh, French uh, baguette stealing. And but then he got somewhat serious and he said, um, do you ride 
a unicycle. And it was the, sort of an odd thing to say. And I was laughing, thinking it was a joke. I said, no, I don't ride a unicycle. And he said, oh, but you must. You must you must ride a unicycle because it's hard and, and not everybody can do it. And it was, an, you know, it was one of those things. That it, 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 it stayed with me. Like that was kind of an odd thing to say, but Peter Sellers said it, so interesting, you know. And then many years later, uh, I went to a – I ended up going just through randomly. I went to see this psychic, and it turns out she wasn't a psychic. She was a medium. And she said, who do you want me to contact? And I said, well, maybe my grandfather. And when she contacted my grandfather, she started to describe – a man that was with him, and she started to describe this. He's pink, and he's got a tic-tac-toe on his forehead, and I flashed. I said, oh, my God, in my bedroom wall when I was a kid, I had a People magazine cover of Peter Sellers, and I said really quietly, suddenly thinking, this is real. I said, it's not. Is it Peter Sellers? You know? And she said, yes, and he's on a unicycle, and I nearly fell off my chair. So the whole recollection of the experience of the unicycle, again, I had this association with movies that I had kind of gone off the track. I was in a period in my life where I'd sort of gotten away from the real love of what it was that I was doing. And that reminder about getting back on the unicycle had had a very strong message for me. And it was something that, again, is a theme for me. What did he see in me that I couldn't see in myself? It gets freakier than that. I mean, first of all, I think you then – didn't you bring the movie back to the psychic and watch the whole movie with the psychic? I did. Yeah. I the, watched the entire but, film. She said Peter would like to <laughs> – Peter would like to watch the movie with you and do commentary. And who cool, – I'm not going to turn – when it's – you know, when a medium says to you, Peter Sellers wants It's like to, the ultimate DVD extra, right? Yeah. You, know, you can see the film with commentary from and somebody who's dead. The funniest thing was, we're, you know, we're sitting in her apartment. I, I went, you know, we made popcorn and, you know, God knows. I don't know. My grandfather apparently was there, Peter. I'm not sure who else. But we watched the movie and we were watching the movie and the medium would laugh. And not at the film. It was like being with a you know a UN translator, and she'd say, you know, Peter saying in real life that would he would never turn down a lady. Like in the scene with Shirley MacLaine, where he turns her down, he says Peter is saying that would that would never happen in real life. Or, so she was translating throughout the entire film. It was incredible. And to cap it all off, at one point you're sharing a house, I think, with your brother. You yes. come home. And you find oh my god, it was unbelievable. I so I go I go back to my Connecticut again, Connecticut, bringing it back to Connecticut, and I go in the basement, and there, leaning against the wall, is a unicycle, and I come running upstairs. I say to him, "What? There's what? what there's a unicycle in the <laughs> where, where did it come from?" And he said. Um, yeah, I found it today at the dump because I'm and I think I'm going to learn how to ride it. So that was again anytime I've even forgotten about the theme of the unicycle, uh Peter Sellers makes sure to bring it right back to me and I should say that everyone associated with the writing of the book, my editor, the copywriter at one time or another would give me a call and say, well, you're not going to believe this, but a guy just went by me in a, <laughs> in a unicycle. So we're always – it's we, I always have a nod to to, uh, to Peter wherever I go. He is my guardian angel. All right. So we're talking to Ileana Douglas. Before we take a break, uh, 
Michael Robert Eck treats. She wore a, wore amazing hats in high school and reviewed films during our morning school news broadcasts. Love her. Uh, this is your whole life coming. It's being played back to you right now. My movie reviews. Yeah, I I didn't do well in school, but the teachers would 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 say I I really enjoyed your review. I, again, not asked to do this. This is very much like that movie Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Not no one asked me to do right. movie reviews. I just decided it was what needed to be done. Jeremy <laughs> tweets, my favorite recent uh, Eliana role was hosting the Women in Film series on TCM. We'll try to talk about that in the final segment. We've got so much stuff that uh, we want to go through. How awesome it is that she's a nutmegger, he says. <laughs> Lee Newton tweets, Eliana brings something great to every role for me. I loved her in the comedy Happy Texas, a very underappreciated gem. And then Heather B. tweets, I'm in the blue velvet changed my life generational camp. It's going to be Dennis Hopper. He's mm. going to get you one way or another. Yeah. He's, he's either it's going to be, well, never mind. I'm surprised she and De Niro aren't closer. I mean, usually when I bite somebody's face off afterwards, there's a kind of a bond. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Stephanie Reef. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Amanda Plummer, who is in So I Married an Axe Murderer, with Anthony LaPaglia, who is in He Said, She Said, with Kevin Bacon, who is in Stir of Echoes, with Ileana Douglas. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff acting out scenes from Cape Fear, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the man who knows everything about football. And now... Back to Colin. So uh, here's the awkward part. So tomorrow night, uh, Ileana Douglas is going to be at the Mark Twain House for um, book signing, book probably book reading, book talking. All She's of just going to entertain the crap out of you. Yes. Uh, and um, so the awkward part is that I'm going to be across town at the uh, Watkinson. Doing, and it's funny because during a break you were saying something about what, whether people in Connecticut are funny or not. We're doing actually a, an evening about that, about comedy. And comedy, how, as it relates to Connecticut, we're going to have people from CT Improv interrupting our discussions. I, I will be with um, comedy impresario Julia Pistel and uh, stand-up uh, Brian Bargainer and playwright Scott Stephen uh, Kegler. And then we'll have, have also all kinds of other chaos going on. So I won't get to see Ileana, and plus I'm competing with her for ticket sales, but um, <laughs> you've only got 30 spots left anyway. I don't feel yeah. bad about this at all. <laughs> so um, uh, I, there's so, so many other things that I, I want to ask you about and about some of those roles, too. I, I feel as though, although I saw Cape Fear and I certainly saw that seed and everything like that, I think that I put your name and face together permanently as a result of To Die For. Yes, I agree. Uh, I and Because there's something about, I mean, first of all, in Cape Fear, you're so overwhelmed by what you just saw that you don't really think, who is that actress? You think, oh, my God, that yeah. was so horrible. But with um, To Die For, I remember sitting there thinking, who's that actress? Because mm-hmm. you're doing that thing. You kind of, uh, we, we did a whole show about Bill Murray about a month ago talking about how sometimes he can sort of be in a movie, in a movie and with us, too, at the same time. Yeah. Somehow or other he can go back and forth. And you do that a little bit in To Die For, too. Yeah, that was, you know, which I didn't know at the time. But that galvanized for me this kind of, you know, in, in the movie and outside the movie and what was interesting about that was, again, in, in thinking about it and writing about it, it's two movies. It's, mm. a do, it's a documentary film, which I'm being interviewed, which was shot first, and me working exclusively with Gus Van Zandt asking me improvisational questions, mm. once again, like off, and given the opportunity 
to create that character, what the what was originally on the page, and then what I came up with based on my experiences of growing up in New England, being around ice skaters, ice skating, you know. So all of that went in, went into the film, and then being in the narrative film, so it was kind of like I was in, you know, I was the outside eyes seeing Nicole Kidman. Uh, seeing who she, you know, who, what kind of a person she, she really was. And that galvanized for me, in a sense, my whole career of people almost wanting me to be in their movie to bring that same quality. The, um, uh, so for people who haven't seen the movie very quickly, um, Nicole Kidman's this exploitive, manipulative uh, person who eventually manipulates Joaquin Phoenix. Sam, uh, the guy from the Easy Rider guy, put your fingers in your ears right now. Um, <laughs> manipulates Joaquin Phoenix into murdering Matt Dillon, who's your sister and who's Nicole Kidman's husband. No, he's, Matt Dillon, who's your brother. Yes. Um, and so you're kind of the bitter, suspicious uh, sister mm-hmm. and the movie ends it's kind of interesting because of course being there ends with Stephen with Peter Sellers walking out over water and in your book you explain even sort of what the inspiration for that was mm-hmm. this movie ends on a kind of on with you on frozen water you're and Sam really don't listen now okay <laughs> you're ice skating over the frozen dead body of your rival your hated Nicole Kidman and you apparently you had to build up your figure skating chops a little bit to you know well, I did. You know, like any actor, of course, when you audition, do you know how to do you know how to ice skate? I are you? What do you get? Um, of course, I know how to ice. No, I did know how to ice skate because I grew up in New England, but I didn't know how to trick skate, which I had to sustain some trick skating in the in the film. So I trained for about six weeks before we went up there. But that went, of course, half of that went out the window when I went up there, and there was we were trying to shoot the scene in a snowstorm, and I was being blown all over the ice. Um, but luckily, we were able to we were able to to finally do it, and it was an incredible. I I, I devoted a whole chapter to the film because, as I said, it really it, the, working with Gus Van Zant in that film really kind of the collaboration that I had with him um, in in was one of the best film experiences I I ever had, and I think that the movie is an is an incredible uh, film. Uh, Mara Lee is tweeting in, tell her I loved her in Six Feet Under and Ghost World and that she's as beautiful as ever. Um, well, speaking of Ghost World, we're mm. running out of time. But, you know, remember the person who tweeted earlier about how you have that oddball beauty that lends something a, a freaky quality. Let's hear a little bit of uh, – We I should set this up. So in Ghost World, this is um, kind of a film class, I think, that you're teaching. Um, art, sco- art, it's school. An art school class. Yeah, that you're art teaching. school That's class. Right. You're teaching an art school class. So here you are. And what's happening here at the beginning is you're showing – an art film. Yes. This very, which has like baby dolls and toilets, basically. Uh, and this is Eliana Douglas. Mirror, father. Mirror. Mirror, father. Mirror. Mirror, father. Mirror. is entitled Mirror, Father, Mirror. I like to show it to people that I'm meeting for the first time because I think it says so much about who I am and what it feels like to inhabit my specific skin. 
<laughs> so that would be the freaky quality, I think. That... Well, and again, this is something, you know, I was get, when I read, got the script and I spoke to Terry Zweigoff on the phone and we immediately hit it off. I said, listen, I've always wanted to do something more like that's, a, a you know, taking a little bit of a hit at a performance artist. I said, nah, I feel like we've seen the kind of hippie art teacher. We've seen that. So I said, can we make her like she's this failed performance artist? And now she's teaching and, again, incorporating that, you know, that, that intense pain that mm. all artists feel. <laughs> um, well, this is also – I think this is for you comedically an area that you're really intrigued by. This um, – how do people cope with setbacks? How do uh, people co- cope yeah. with being transplanted from a place of success to a mm-hmm. place of non-success? So, you know, we played this – for those of you who have been listening for the whole show, we played this intro that I sort of ripped off from something else that Ileana did that was actually inspired by a moment. You're in a supermarket. Mm-hmm. I, you're for real in a supermarket with a friend. Mm-hmm. We'll tell you who the friend is in a second because that's important. <laughs> Uh, and this guy comes up to you and basically does that, right? He just says he's loved everything. He's got a he's got the ticket. He's got a movie ticket that yeah. he has for uh, Grace of My Heart. He cries. Right? He yeah. literally starts to cry in the supermarket. Won't let me cross the aisle. Says he's he's got a ticket of Grace of My Heart. Uh, how my work meant so much to him. And God bless you. I mean, and he knows every credit I'm I'm in. He knows that I'm nominated for an Emmy for Six Feet Under. He was just on and on. And as he, as he after after he blessed me, he walked away, and I was so stunned. And I turned to my friend. Can I say his you name? You say the so I turned to my friend who happened to be the actor uh, Gary Oldman. I like that you asked me for permission. It's <laughs> actually your story. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> I'm, I'm very polite. Um, but I turned to, to Gary and I said, wouldn't it be fr- funny if, you know, uh, he finished that whole speech and I looked at him and said, thank you, paper or plastic. And then you revealed that I was actually working in the supermarket. Um, and he just got a look on his face and he said, you have to make that, you have to make a movie of that and I'll help you make that movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up filming it as a short film, originally a four-minute film. It, that four-minute film got into Sundance. And then when I when some of the people from the Sundance channel saw it, we did it. They wanted to do an anthology of all these films. And when I went back, that was the crazy thing. This whole concept of celebrities working in a supermarket. When I went back to shoot it, that's when I met my idol, Albert Brooks, who just happened to be there that day getting ribs and Arizona <laughs> iced tea, which became my only iced tea I would have after 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 meeting Albert Brooks. Well, that's one thing that I love about you in, in, the, in the book that you write is that you're like us. You get as gushy and weird when you meet somebody that you really whose work you really admire, even though you've got you've had the chance to work with all kinds oh. of people. You know, everybody you go grocery shopping with Gary Oldman, for God's sakes. Yeah. Um, but well, that's a, yeah. For me to die for was, yes, I was in the film acting, but it was also an opportunity to stalk Buck Henry <laughs> on a daily basis. And. And, you know, as I said, the, the you know, the oh, Buck Henry, he just thought I was so delightful the first day. I was like, tell me about Catch-22. And, and he story after story. And then I go back. I write down every story. Sorry. <laughs> I write down everything. Said, but like by day three, you know, he was like, I'd see him at lunch. He'd say, Ileana, you can sit here, but you <laughs> cannot. Please do not ask me any more things about what's up doc or get smart like i'm going to get like i can't take it anymore 
Um, we're almost out of time here, and you are—you're a big movie fan too. I mean, yeah, there are actors who are movie fan. You're a big movie fan. So yeah. uh, we just had the Golden Globes. Like, we're heading towards the Oscars. Yes. It's been an inter- interesting year of movies. Anything that you really loved this year? Well, it's great. You know, you can universally know if I like a movie, it no one else does, uh, <laughs> or it's yep. not doing well. And my favorite movie so far this year is Youth. Mm-hmm. I, I love that, that film. I was a great fan of uh, his film last year called The Great Beauty. And uh, The Great I, Beauty is such an amazing movie. I, was, I mean, I thought it was incredible. The music, again, youth has all those. It's very contemplative, mm-hmm. and I think that's hard for people, but I tend to like slow movies. But the documentaries have really impressed me. The Best of Enemies, one of my mm-hmm. favorite. I've seen it about three times. Uh, Listen to Me, Marlon. Yep. Uh, and the the documentary Amy about Amy Winehouse. Mm-hmm. I did like the movie Room. Um, although uh, I'm critical of the fact that I saw the mic pack twice in the film. <laughs> oh, that's not good. I don't like. Yeah. yeah, I don't like seeing mistakes. But some of the big film. I'm not. The movies have not blown me away mm. this year. I just saw the Big Short this weekend, and, and it's odd because it does a little, a little bit of the to die for thing too, right? Yeah, it's kind of cutting in and out of those two different realities, or about eighteen different realities. It's, it seems to me again, it's cutting out of them, but it's winking at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's very, it's it appears for me to be very self conscious, and the first. Celebrity, I didn't know who that was. No, I didn't know who she was either. Right. So to me, again, just as a narrative, yeah. in my in my opinion, don't kill me. In my opinion, as a filmmaker, the first celebrity has got to be somebody we know. Yeah. Because I didn't understand what I was like. What what happened? We, <laughs> what's, is it real at a place? All right. Uh, we have to stop. This has been so much oh, fun. I'm so sorry. Well, I want to be on Table for Five with you and talk to movies. We'll keep checking. Yeah. Well, you can yeah. find me on, you know, Ileana Rama, and we can continue to chat in TCM Party, too. All right. Okay. There are lots of uh, opportunities to chat, but you yeah. can chat with her directly tomorrow night at the Mark Twain House. Ileana, we're big fans. May we take a photo with you? Seriously, no. I'm Kion Wolf from the Colin McEnroe Show. I'm not Ileana Douglas. Say cheese. I'm not. Oh, it came out so great. Mm, no, do it again. I look tired. Oh, that was good. Just one more. We've got to go. We're teaching a Chumbawamba class in five minutes. I am Ileana Douglas. One more, please.